0: Rehabilitation Tribe and welcome back to the podcast. This is Season 3, Episode 11 with Abby J. Wilson. Today we're going to be talking to our first Habasha guest and also someone who has a f- mission that's close to my heart. We've had so many gurus over time telling us what to do. Now the next generation for Industry Revolution is showing us how to do it so let's go ahead and meet abby and hear some of her wisdom hey abby how you doing good how are you i'm doing pretty good i was happy to have somebody from my hometown area dc yes (laughs) represent represent and for everybody listening they're like what does that mean could you tell us what that is
1: Sure. So Habesha is what Ethiopians and Eritreans call ourselves, basically. Some people say it with the H. I grew up saying it without the H, but that's how we refer to each other.
0: Okay. Yeah. And side note, as Abby said, the Ethiopians say it Habesha with no H, and Eritreans tend to say it with an H, Habesha.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Typically, yes.
0: Yeah, but it's so nice to have you here. the The Ethiopian community in America is booming, especially in D.C. So tell us a little bit about your story. How did your family end up over there?
1: Okay, sure. So my dad was a doctor back home, and he did his residency in the States. So he's been here since the 70s. Started out in Philly, then moved down to D.C. after a few years. On one of his trips back home, he used to go back and visit very often. In the 90s, he went to visit his brother, and my mom worked with his brother. So that's how they met. And then they got married. And so through that, she got her visa and she moved here to the States. At that time, they were living in Maryland, right around
0: Tacoma Park, Silver Spring area. All right. Your dad was here in the first wave. Was it right before or right? yes this, oh my gosh so. you
1: are so hip it was literally like <laughs> the year of Durkizeh before it started so that as when we say that we mean like when the communist regime came up and he said and honestly like with a few months after he left is when it started so yeah he got right out of there just in time so yes mm. yeah oh my gosh you're so hip <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, the it affects a lot of my friends even now, even though they were born after it. They have family members that are like, yeah, a lot of your uncles, they went somewhere and we never saw them again. It was a very scary yes. time. Yeah, it was to some people, it
1: worked in their advantage. So like my uncle, for example, because if it was part of the communist regime, their students could go to other communist countries and learn for free. So like my uncle was able to go and get his degree in engineering that in Russia. So there were some people that were able to benefit. But yeah, it was also very hard in general, living that life. I know people who were
0: persecuted. Yeah, it was a whole generation from 1974, all the way to 1991. There was a lot of stuff going on.
1: Yeah. And the kids of the people that grew up in that time we almost know that word like we've heard of it we know what it means they have an idea of what the life was like around that time so yeah mostly other that i talk to around here that were like born and raised here even though they were born and raised to another they still know
0: what it was yeah that's true and for a person who's second generation i know as an american i haven't dealt with this but a lot of my friends they're latino second generation do you feel like you have trouble balancing your parents' culture with being American sometimes?
1: Yeah, there's definitely that. For me, it's in the form of a language barrier. So even though like I'm proficient, I'm not 100% fluent. So there are some words like particularly jokes are like next level proficiency <laughs> when it comes to languages. You have to really know a lot of like intricate vocabulary and like the culture. And so there are definitely things that like go over my head, but my vocabulary is a bit limited, and conjugations, oh my goodness, like the way Amariña, which is the language that a lot of people can speak, the way that works is you can conjugate and three words in English would be one word in Amharic, and then there's like a masculine version and a feminine version, so there's a lot, it's like tricky in your mind to go back and forth until of course like once you get to a certain point then you can flip back and forth no problem but there is that kind of like that hump you have to get over because I grew up hearing and speaking it's been easy for me to get over that hump and get an understanding of it so for me yeah as far as that disconnect between like me being an American my parents obviously being born and raised in Ethiopia between me and them there was very much friction in that way so I'm lucky my dad has been here since the 70s like I said so he barely has an accent he's super Americanized he it doesn't even go back home that often he still obviously wants me to know the culture and all of that but he doesn't try and force anything or like, really, oh you have to be a certain way it's so different because most Ethiopians are not like this but even when it came to work yes he would have loved for me to be a doctor because he's a doctor but when I decided that I would not go that route, there was still like a lot of freedom. There wasn't like a huge fight. Whereas I have friends who that conversation was a very hard conversation to have with their parents. Like, oh, I'm not going to be a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer. And then my mom, similar, even though she came like in the 90s, her family, just the way she grew up, they, she was also very lenient. So because I live in Silver Spring, which is basically little Addis Ababa in America, there's so many chickens here. It was very easy for me to have access to my cultural any school I went to there were other Ethiopians there some of them were born back home some of them were born here even though I was born here I was raised to have that instant connection with other Ethiopians like oh you're Ethiopian let's be friends like done it. We're cousins (laughs) great let's move on because I'm not like 100 percent fluent there are times where I feel out of the loop but other than that as far as who I am as a person and like trying to fit into a certain box I've never really had too much pressure with that
0: yeah, that is definitely a blessing. Usually when we think of people who are like, no, I have to do this. We think of tiger moms in Asian cultures, but yeah. other cultures have that, that issue too, where if you're not a doctor or lawyer or some other type of white-collar professional yes. where you get paid a salary, then your family is like, what are you doing with your life?
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. And don't even get me started on the parents want them to like not only marry someone from their country, but then from their tribe. That's not always easy, depending on where you live in the United States. You can't really control those things. It's easy to say that when you are, like, any Ethiopia, okay, you have to marry an Ethiopian from this tribe. Okay, it's a little easier. I got a lot more options. But, like, out here, who knows who you're going to meet and be around. So that's, like, another thing that a lot of struggle with, especially the girls, because there's just a lot of, quote, unquote, rules about who you should be with, who you should not be with. So there's also pressure there. Yeah, I know
0: my husband's family at first they were very upset with him because I'm not Sha, but they love yeah. me now but at first they were like you couldn't find a Sha girl in all family. Exactly. what's wrong with you
1: <laughs> yes girl yes it's I again in that area I'm also very blessed like a lot of my cousins did not marry it means I did not marry and our family has been like totally open to it so that is again it's not common <laughs> like I have friends who date behind their parents' backs because they don't want to have that conversation. Oh, he's nice with him.
0: Yeah, that's a whole conversation. You couldn't find a boy in your own tribe. Yeah, like. Yes. <laughs> like, it's not that simple. Like, it's
1: literally not that simple. My husband's family... His aunt lives in Alexandria. So of course, Alexandria, Virginia, a ton of Ethiopians there too in her apartment. So she's also very familiar with the culture. And so when he told her, oh, I'm dating this Ethiopian girl, she was like, have you met her father? He's like, yeah. And he was okay with you? Yeah. And his aunt was like, wow, this is like rare. You are lucky, man, because most Abishad dads would not be okay with you right up front. Like they wouldn't need time to get acclimated. Yeah, for those of you who
0: are thinking, what in the world are they talking about? If you've seen my big fat Greek wedding, it's like that.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes, it's not just that the Greeks who have a problem with it. It's a lot of cultures.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. But now you have your own family. You're a mom. Mm -hmm. And... Like you said, you, you studied biochemistry and you decided yep. to do a career switch. How did all of that happen? I studied biochem,
1: kind of like going in my father's footsteps a little bit. I did want to go into the medical field, not necessarily as like a practitioner, but like more in administration. Get my masters in that was like the long term plan. Started working for insurance companies in administration. Then met my husband, got married. Then we had a, our daughter and. I always wanted 100% flexibility with my schedule. Let's be honest, most jobs are just not going to give you that, which is fair. They're within their right to have any kind of expectations on you to a certain extent. So I just knew right off the bat, both of us were like, "Mm, no, our priority is her, at least right now when she's super little. So I still wanted to work. I'm like, okay, what can I do from home? The internet is amazing. I know I can do something from home. So did some Googling discovered a reddit post actually of a web developer and he basically talked about how he had started freelancing and in his first year he made around 100k from freelance web development and i'm like wait a minute i can do web development because i had taken as an elective i took a web development class in college and i did really like it i didn't think of it as a career to be a web developer that just wasn't really something that i was familiar with so when i graduated was looking for a job that I could do from home. I found that I'm like, I could do this. So I brushed up on my skills. I learned copywriting as well. They're not just an online brochure. It's not just something that you put like a list of the most important information about your business, frequently asked questions. It's not that. It's so much more than that. If you do it right, it can really be a solid revenue generator. It can be a sales machine for your business. So that's my philosophy about web development. Once I found him and since I've been working, that kind of led me to copywriting because I'm like, okay, this is a sales machine. The words have to be on point. They cannot be something that I just wing it. You cannot wing the copy on your website. It's really hard to do. And so it requires a lot of research. So I combine those two skills. And that's what I've been doing for the past year.
0: Yeah, girl, you are a triple threat. You got web development copywriting and brand messaging so some people are like copywriting brand messaging are those the same thing no please educate us (laughs) no okay so how do i
1: put this okay so think of the old spice commercials right where you have the dude on the horse smell like a man that voice that personality is the brand message so if you were to describe that with some adjectives, you'd say, okay, they, they poke fun at themselves, they're quirky, they're not too serious, they're poking fun at like chauvinism, like their brand messaging. And so how does that apply to the rest of their brand? It means that when they write a copy, they write it in a certain voice. There are certain things that they're not going to say. And Old Spice piece of copy is not going to sound like a piece of copy from apple and when i say copy I mean, like the words for your business any words for your business that are written is considered copywriting all but top brand, they have their own voice and that is the brand message so it's the voice it's that core thing that you want to be known for as a brand whether you're amazon you just want to be known for being obsessed with your customers and being everywhere all the time whether you're Apple and you want to be known as like a luxury elite technology brand, not necessarily like the first on the market, but when they do come on the market, they are the best. That's like your brand messaging strategy. What is the face that you are putting out to the world? So copywriting falls underneath that. Once you have determined, okay, these are our brand characteristics. We are, again, going back to Old Spice, we don't take ourselves too seriously. We aren't good at what we do, but we want to poke fun at chauvinism. We want to have a lighthearted voice. So based on that, here's how we're going to write our copy. And so every time I work with a brand, with a company, if they do not already have a brand messaging strategy, I create one for them. So that way, when I write, I want it to sound like the other copy that they already have or plan to have in the future. You want to sound the same across every touchpoint, every platform. It's not a coincidence that you can see a Target commercial out of the corner of your eye and know it's a Target commercial. They have been able to do that because they're constantly repeating the same images, the same colors, the same types of people. It's words, but it's a lot more than words. So that's what I would
0: say. That's like the main difference. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. The way you explained it. Mm -hmm. Cool. Most people, they think of copywriting is like the feelings, but because you are more left brain, you have a more data-driven approach. So how does that work when you're planning something for a client?
1: Yeah. The data-driven approach to me, like the easiest and the best approach. So basically what I do is I collect voice of customer data. And what that is, you are talking to customers, you're learning the market, and you are taking their words, like quotes from them, and you're putting it on the website. This is more for sales copy. But a lot of the headlines that I've written have been like straight from people's mouths. Either they're my client or their customers or other people in the market. Because the goal of your copy is you want people to see themselves in your copy. You want them to land on your website and fundamentally know, okay, this product is for me. The only way you can really do that is to talk like they talk. Another thing that voice of customer data is really helpful at is you get to know what it is that your customers like about your product, right? The business might think, oh, they like our cars because they're super fast. When in reality, people like your cars because they're sleek, because of the way they look, because of the fuel economy, because they're comfy. It could be so many different things. You don't know by guessing you know by talking to them so that's essentially what voice of customer data is so i collect that i talk to customers i talk to clients i look at reviews testimonials i read the market read um, even like amazon book reviews if it's like a service for example say they help people get into a new career i look at career development books see the reviews what are people looking at how do they talk that is like the main research that every copywriter should be doing You don't want to just sit and figure it out and just poof, the words come out from your head. Copywriting is not nearly as creative as people think it is, honestly. It's 80% research, 20% creativity. When it comes to picking out the words that you are going to use on the website, you do wanna have an element of understanding how people work and what makes them tick and their feelings and okay, this quote will work, but this one won't. But you can't make that decision if you have not done the research for the copy. So yeah, I have a way more data-driven approach than what most people would expect.
0: Yeah, it's good for people to know that because there are still a lot of people that they think copywriting is like a movie montage. You're just sitting there and thinking, and be like, I got it!
1: That's not no. how it works. <laughs> No. I mean, here's the thing with copy as well. If you had a store window and think about like Christmas and people are like, wow, look at that window. Oh my gosh, look at all these little gadgets and gizmos. But they walk past the store because they weren't really interested in the store. The window took all their attention. That's what happens when you guess at copywriting and you're just looking for the most clever thing to say. People will be like, oh, look at those words. How did you think of what to say? If people are coming to you saying that you didn't do it right. You want people coming to you saying, wow, that made me want to learn more about the product. I kept reading and wow, you want people to be raving about the product, not necessarily about the words
0: that were written. Yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. You, you even mentioned yourself in one of your, I don't know if it was a comment or a post. You said, unless you have Coca-Cola money, you can't afford to appeal to everyone. Generic
1: copy doesn't really push the needle It does not convince
0: people it's not
1: super persuasive it's just eh, meh i guess whereas copy like for example when slack first came out they came out and they were the email killer like super bold we're out here your email is not working for you we have something better like straight up and they have a very specific market that they were going out and trying to reach especially if you're like a new product or you're in like a saturated market the way you stand out is not with copy that's like generic and appeals to everyone it's super vanilla because it will appeal to no one the only way that kind of messaging works is if you have enough dollars behind it and you just inundate people with the same thing
0: yeah that's true and Nobody has Coca-Cola money, so we better learn how to do it correctly. (laughs) No.
1: Ain't nobody got Coca-Cola money. Not yet. Not right now. And the way that Coca-Cola got to that was not with generic messaging. They didn't start out doing that. Apple didn't start out that way. Any of the big brands that you can think of today did not start out with super generic. I'm here for everyone. Like, even Amazon. Amazon was specifically known for if you want a book and you want it shipped to your house, you go to Amazon. And that was it. That was all that he did in the first few years. So, even every big brand started out with a specific target market and what Seth Godin likes to call their minimum viable audience.
0: Oh, you like Seth Golden too? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everyone in
1: marketing, <laughs> almost everyone in the market, it's like bare minimum. It's like marketing 101 is to go search up Seth Golden and learn about his stuff.
0: <laughs> and Seth Golden is like the nicer Steve Jobs, he's also bald with glasses.
1: Oh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, Steve Jobs is also a marketing genius. Both Mm -hmm. of them were. And what it really comes down to is knowing people and knowing the market and over performing and like over delivery.
0: Yep, you definitely got something going on here. Mm -hmm. Before we get to you tearing my homepage apart, (laughs) (laughs) let's go ahead and have a quick word from our sponsor. So stay right there, Abby. I'll be right back. Mm -hmm. All right, you guys, so Abby is very wise and she's making a lot of big changes in this industry that needs some disruption. We've had so many people telling us what to do instead of how to do it. Well, let me give you a tip of how to save some money on international transfers. There's this company that you may have heard of before. They were called TransferWise, but now they're called Wise. And I really like their multi-currency account as an American expat who has to pay bills here in Germany and in America, but usually gets paid in dollars, that causes a lot of stress if you don't know what to do. Most companies like Western Union, MoneyGram, they will send your money for you, but for a very large fee. If I send $100 from my U.S. bank account to my Euro bank account in Wise, they only pay about a dollar 50 in fees, $1.50. That allows me to keep more of the money for my small business and keep rocking on. <laughs> so if you're interested in working with multinational companies or you're an expat abroad like me or even after corona if you decide to be a digital nomad, this is the thing for you. They even have a debit card that allows you to use your money In any of those accounts, it will take it out automatically without having to worry about the conversion fee. So go ahead and try out the WISE multi-currency account. The link is here below for the audio listeners. It'll be in the show notes. But try it out as a recommended resource from Clever Hybrids. And now back to Abby as she tears apart my homepage. (laughs) Mwahaha. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Abby, I'm ready. I I don't have any tissues, but I don't think I'm going to cry that hard. just might end up going like this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you're fine.
1: So I'm on cleverhybrids.com and here's the way that I like to look at homepages. I'm going to just go through your homepage really quickly. But before I do that, you want to think of a homepage as an introduction. And you want it to have a messaging hierarchy. And what what I mean by messaging hierarchy is like the order in which you present the information. You want to have a messaging hierarchy that makes sense to the reader. You're going to explain what you do before you talk about how you do it, before you talk about why people should even believe you. It needs to make sense from a logical standpoint. It's hard to do when it's your business because you oftentimes you want to start in the middle. So it's always good to have people who are not super familiar with your business to look at your website and give you a fresh and new perspective. So the questions that I like to answer on a homepage in this order is what do you do? Why should I care? Am I the only one that cares? How do you do what you say you do? How will my life improve? Is it safe for me to believe you? And now it's a call to action. So when I'm looking at your website, I'm looking at the homepage from like a design perspective, which for me, even though I'm a web developer, honestly, it's not the design that's going to make people buy or work with you. It's the words that you were trying to get across to them. So while yes, design is important, it's only important as long as it is uplifting and supporting the copy. So when I look at the website and you have a logo really big and in the middle, it's taking up a lot of real estate. And it's not the best use of that real estate. When people first land on your website, you only have a few seconds to convince them. But when I first land, the main thing that jumps out at me is the logo. But the logo is not going to convince me to work with you. It's the content. So as I scroll down, and I'm looking at like the main headline, nothing in life is a straight line anymore. The 21st century moves too fast for rules. English proficiency is not enough. You need principles to help you navigate an international world that is multilingual and multicultural you need to be a clever hybrid here's the thing with headlines is they're the most important part of your website because most people are not going to read every single word of your website they're just going to scan through and see and what are they going to scan they're going to scan your headlines so you want to tell a full story with just your headlines before you really get into the descriptions and the paragraphs so when i first landed and i see nothing in life is a straight line anymore i really have no context for what it is that you were talking about until I keep reading. People are not always going to read. You want to treat your headlines like they're the only things that people will really read. So i would have this like a little bit more detail. Like I might even put English proficiency is not enough anymore as the main headline because then I have a good idea of what it is you're working in. And then scrolling down, it's good that you have the social proof here. What I would like, if you made the logo smaller, you could fit all these logos up top. And so when I first land, I could see those logos. I like how you have the tired of learning the old way. So right here, you're good. You answered, what do you do? Why people should believe you? And how do you do what you do? So what if you could identify your problem areas and start from there on day one? That's what we're about. So it's a good way to explain what you do from like a basic level. A lot of companies don't do this, but they just take it for granted. Oh, everyone knows what we do. Not necessarily. So I think that's good. Scrolling down all these things that are things I assume that your customer base really cares about but i wouldn't necessarily have a call to action under each and every single one i would just have it down at the bottom because another thing with websites is there's like kind of a debate like should you have a lot of calls to action so you just have one i feel like it's important to have a call to action on the header when people land because even if they are not going to click on it right away You're subliminally messaging to them, hey, this is what I want you to do at some point and sticking in their head as they scroll down. So when they see it for the second time, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I knew they wanted me to do that. I'm okay with that. You want to think about it again in terms of the messaging hierarchy. Do you want people to leave the message before you even finish speaking? You want to get through it and convince them before you're like, okay, schedule a session. But I think these are good benefits straight to the point. I like that you have the social proof, also super important. I like how you have this kind of like a case study, find out how he did it. Really good social proof as well. And down here you have some of us learn by listening, others by reading. We have a blog. We have all these other things that you can look at. So here I would have a link to some of these things, the button to resources to help guide people along the path to purchase like I have here like the the different types of people learner that you are we can cater to you and you have like this final call to action so in general I think the main thing the messaging hierarchy it makes sense I have an idea of what you do you could get a little bit more clear on who you do it for like who is your target market either saying them by name or just talking about their problems in so much detail that they know, oh dang, like they really understand what I'm going through. Yeah. And again, using what I spoke about earlier with the voice of customer data and talking to customers and just using their words and putting it in the website. The hard part is collecting all of the research. That's the hard part of copy. It's not the writing, it's the research. It's getting it together, organizing it. Once you've had everything together, it's baking a cake. You just go assemble it in the right order. A lot of copywriters will use frameworks to help uh, with this process framework, like I just spoke about with the questions for home pages. there are a ton of them out there that you can use. So yeah, in general, I think it does well. I'll just fix up the copy a bit, rework the header, but the order in which you present the information makes a lot of sense. Like it builds on itself, which I really like. So yeah
0: <laughs> that was good. very practical advice. I took some notes here. I'm going to change that after the show. Very good stuff. <laughs> But, like you said, the research is the hardest part. Thomas Edison said it's 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration or sweating. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Just replace that 1% creativity with 99% research.
0: Yep. <laughs> yep. All right. This is actually built from your wireframe. So, I want to give you kudos for that.
1: Yeah, I figured I hmm, I recognize the way everything laid out. <laughs> <laughs> I like what you did with it. Like, you added your own touch to it, like, at the bottom. Because I didn't have any kind of customer segmentation on the page. It was more general. But where you put it was a good place to put it. And it was, like, very clear. Something you can try is, ideally, when you go on either Pexels or Unsplash, try and find pictures from the same photographer mm-hmm. and have those pictures together. That way, it still looks and feels Like, the one photographer did it. When you have a lot of pictures and they all have different filters and different lightings and different, like, settings, it's a dead giveaway. Okay, yeah, they just, like, cherry pick these from all over the place. But when you have one photographer who did a lot of them, it makes it look more custom of, like, a little trick that you guys can use when you're using stock photos. Because, obviously, most people cannot get, like, a professional photographer and models to do the thing, but there are a lot of resources out there that you can still get like that custom look without going through the process of hiring a photographer and
0: doing all of that. Okay. Yeah. That's a good tip. I have to look at that. Unsplash is a very good source for photos. And there's another one that has black and brown people called nappy.co. If you are going to give me a score from A to D, how did I do? i will say like a B. Hey, that's pretty good. Yeah. Mm All right. Yes. (laughs) So you guys, this is Abby's specialty. If you want to check that out on her website, this is her flagship thing where you can get your website audited. I'm not going to say the price because as she gets better and better, it will go up (laughs) and up. (laughs) She will help you make those small changes to see a big ROI, return on investment. Mm -hmm every website
1: needs to be torn down and redesigned right sometimes you just need to make a few tweaks in there think of it like a house like sometimes you need to gut your whole bathroom which is what we're doing right now (laughs) sometimes you just have to make it like we'll we'll just replace the curtains or we'll replace the fixtures or like little things it's the same thing with the website there's levels to fixing it renovating it quote unquote
0: yeah that's a good illustration i like that
1: it's on the top of my mind right now so everything in life is like owning a house and having to renovate it
0: everything in life
1: i can (laughs) i can compare i can draw that line because that's all i'm thinking about right now
0: (laughs) (laughs) everything in life is renovating a house oh my goodness (laughs) (laughs) so this is something that you've been talking about for a couple months now and i think people still aren't paying attention It might be the biggest thing that happened to the internet since Y2K. What is Google about to do? Oh, my chicken sandwich.
1: Google is out here trying to give the people a better experience on websites. They call it the core web vitals. So think of it and like you go to the doctor and they take your vitals, your blood pressure, all that. There are specific ranges that you want to be in to let you know, okay, I'm healthy or I'm not healthy. Same thing with these core web vitals. It's three specific things on your website that Google is going to check. They have a baseline, like this is good, this is not good. And they're going to measure you up against that. Largest contentful paint, first input delay, and canonical shift, I think is what it's called. Those things are probably Greek to a lot of you guys. And they were to me too when I first saw I'm like, why do they have to make it so complicated? They're actually very simple things. So the largest contentful paint, it's so hard to say. Basically, when people first land on your website, what is the biggest element? Is it a headline? Is it a picture? Once you figure that out, Google's going to measure how long does it take to load? It's like a way to measure because usually the biggest thing takes the longest to load. So if your image takes... 1.5 seconds to load. Google is going to be like, okay, the main header is probably going to take at least 1.5 seconds to load. And they want it to be within a specific range because they don't want to send people to super slow websites. That's not really a good user experience. People are just going to bounce. So there's that. There's the first input delay. When you first land on a website, can you immediately start clicking on buttons? Can you start clicking on links? Or is there a delay? Google is going to measure how long it takes for your website to actually respond to people's clicks and people's scrolling and people's input. There's that. And the third is um, on YouTube or sometimes even on Google search pages, which I feel like is super hypocritical. But when you go on a page and you click on a link. And the whole page shifts down because some pop-up ad pops up and then you accidentally click on the ad that you didn't want to go on and you're just like annoyed at the whole situation. So Google is basically saying, nah, we're not going to let you guys do that. If you do that, we're going to knock you down. And so that is what that last thing measures. Those are the three vital signs that they use to deliver a good user experience. So there is talk saying, okay, maybe they'll start using stamps on the google search pages that the tbd that's just like in the rumor mill but that whole thing launches sometime in may and the weird thing about this algorithm update because it is an algorithm update it will affect how high up on the search results that you are it's hard to say how much it will affect it there's really no way to know for sure but what's interesting about this update two things one they announced it over a year ago which is very rare. Google usually does not give that much notice for any kind of algorithm update. Two, they have not one, not two, but six tools for people to use to measure those core web vitals. That's another kind of signal. It doesn't mean that everyone should go freak out if you're not passing it, because it is hard to pass if you're using like a website builder or like a different host, because a lot of the things are out of your hands if you're not a developer. If you have like big images, shrink them down. You don't need to upload like a 5,000 pixel wide picture when only 200 pixels is going to show up on the website. You can also use like tinypng.com to compress it. Don't use more than two to three fonts in your website. Make sure you have a good host that is like hosting your website because a lot of these things are up to them and they're out of your
0: hands. Yeah, so we'll have to see if is it like a eh like Y two K or is it a big game changer like HTTPS. Let the wait and see. Yeah, exactly, exactly. One thing that will help us not to freak out is nothing is set in stone. You can always change it if you need to.
1: It's true, and Google's tools are really good. There's a Chrome extension called Lighthouse, and you can run it on your website. And it will tell you in detail what on your website is slowing it down. So they are very helpful. They also have a ton of resources on web.dev on like how to improve and get ready for this update.
0: Okay. I have to check those out too. I'm seeing a trend just to wrap up here, Abby, with a lot of people who are taking a degree in one thing, and then later on for several different reasons, they decide to make a career change. Mm-hmm. Some people, they might be reluctant to do that. because like, I don't know anything about that, but you made a good quote. I'm just quoting you. <laughs> 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 Your first draft doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to exist. Abby J. Oh, yes. Yes.
1: <laughs> Listen, I am still a perfectionist especially in school. Whenever I would write my first draft, I was a person that would erase it and rewrite it and try to make it perfect. I feel like the reason why most people do this is because they don't take that editing session very seriously, because I know I did it. And that's why I felt like, oh, I have to make it really good the first time. If you already build it into your workflow, okay, I'm going to write it. I'm going to pause. And then I'm going to edit it. Then it it takes away all that pressure. Usually I like to let it sit to come back to it because I can look at it with fresh
0: eyes yeah if we're gonna have a shot illustration it would be just like what the longer it cooks the better it gets
1: yes <laughs> yeah. sometimes it just tastes better the next day it's just that amazing
0: <laughs> yeah it's true I'm working on a app right now but I have to build a course for the app and I think i restarted at least three times now I'm like on the third draft I'm like you know what no I'm gonna write it let it sit come back to it maybe the next day, and then you see something that was missing, but you can't keep starting over from scratch. Rubbing up here for other people who might be second generation or first generation, what language do you speak with your parents? And also what language do you speak with your daughter? How do you balance that out? Oh, that's a good
1: one. So growing up, my mom would speak to me in Amharic and my dad would speak to me in English. Now, because my dad was so used to speaking with me in English, it's hard to get him to switch back to speak to me at <laughs> Amharic. Even though it's his native language, he's been in this country so long that they're both the same, just as easy for him. Uh, and so even with my daughter, because she's my daughter, speaks to her in english i'm like i'm constantly telling him, you need to not do that you need to speak with her and i'm hard i speak to her in both i switch i go back and forth it's also helpful because we live in such a diverse area there's so many other abishas that we are not the only people she has to learn her culture from i learned a lot about ethiopia from my classmates growing up in school from like people that i went to church with when you live in an area where there are a lot of people from your ethnicity it puts less pressure on you as the parent. There's like the community around her that's going to help her as an educator. Abishas are super friendly, especially with other Abishas. And even if they know that you're married to an Abisha, I've had that situation with my husband. He visited this Inn coffee shop and they just started talking. That was like a great conversation that they had just about that because her husband was also African-American and she had a daughter who was mixed. So my dad... His default is to speak to me and my daughter in English, but I've been working on it for a long time. Like, no, ba you have to say it in a police. And I find that usually when I talk to him in Amharic, he responds to me in Amharic, so that's my way of doing it. <sighs> but yeah, that's the situation because I find that when you are bilingual, when you are in a culture where there are people of your ethnicity you have a default with people okay even though you think i'm just used to speaking to you in english i'm going to talk to you in english even for you i'm going to speak to you in Amharic, and that's just kind of like how we build our relationship i don't know how to like perfectly explain it or if everyone feels that way but for me i find that with everyone i have I'm like a baseline. Like this is how we interact whether it's like in english whether it's
0: in heart that kind of thing yeah that's true it's Funny how you mentioned that you have to make him do it is good to remind people. Do you feel like you have different personas in the languages? I feel like when I speak German, I'm way more serious. And when oh, I speak absolutely! Spanish, I can't. Yeah, it's yeah. That is a fact.
1: That is a fact. There are research <laughs> studies that talk about this. I'm not kidding. Like there. I remember I read about a study where. They would ask someone the same question in their native language and in English and they would give completely different responses. I run into this as well. So in Amharic, we don't really say, please, thank you very often. You just kind of ask someone to do it. It's really not a part of the culture. Whereas Western culture is super, at least in America, it's just super polite. It's like over polite when I compare it to Amharic. So sometimes what I do is I will speak in English the way I speak in Amharic just like move. And it's not that big of a deal. Like, I'm not i living. Where Whereas if you say that in English, move. They're going to feel some type of way, like, excuse me? I, what? So sometimes I will talk to my husband the way I would say it in Amharic, move. Because we're just so close. And he just has to be like, uh, no. Can you say please? Can you say excuse me? <laughs> no, that's not how my mind works. A lot of those things, like as far as being polite, learn from your parents. And because my parents came from a culture where you're not always saying please and thank you all of the time you're only saying it sometimes they brought that into English as well even though I learned growing up to say please and thank you it's not the same it didn't have the same weight as it does in American households
0: that's funny you bring up that because part of what happens in Tigrinya and Amharic a lot of Semitic languages is the politeness is already built into the phrase I don't know if it's the same with Tigrinya but you can say (laughs) it's like the command write it Hephaestus, please write. Yes, please. yes, is it like exactly.
1: That? Yeah, i is the same way. I automatically do that in my head. I didn't even realize. That is how I be polite. i I don't say please. I just rephrase. I just conjugate the verb in a different way. Yeah. Thank you for that. I literally had not thought of that. <laughs> just like kind of blew my mind right now. I'm gonna go sit on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. And Germanic languages, they do that, but using a different verb so that they have what's called modal verbs. Could you, would you, I would like to make it a little bit nicer. We're all trying to be polite, just in different ways. There's so many
1: nuances with different languages.
0: Yeah. Language is fun, but it's very complicated. Oh
1: yeah. It's an entire culture. It's not just words. Those words are influenced by the culture. Certain. Languages do not
0: have words for certain things because it's not a part of their culture. Yeah, big one that drives Americans crazy when they're trying to learn another language is we use you for everything, but in most languages, they have a formal and informal, and then in Amharic and Tigrinya, you have the formal, informal, polite form, you female, you male, yeah. you group. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I like Amharic and Tigrinya, though, because you could have a whole sentence in just one word.
1: Literally, yes. Although it can really trip you up if you're speaking it, especially for me, because I speak Spanish as well. I learned Spanish like from a book. So I can refer back to those rules in Spanish because I know them. But in harak, I don't know the rules. <laughs> I. just do it if you're a native speaker you don't always know all the grammar rules off the top of your head you're not thinking about grammar as you're speaking you're just speaking the way you've been taught if it's a new word I'm like wait I don't remember how I've heard people conjugate this so I just have to figure it out right
0: yeah that's the way learning should be you shouldn't be having your nose in the grammar book all the time it should be from context yeah I think it's both I find that knowing the grammar helps me to be A little
1: bit better um, just because it gives me like something to fall back on okay let me think about the rule here okay this is how I do it if you don't have that you're like 100% based on experience and you if you haven't experienced it there's no way for you to know it. whereas like with the rules you can apply them to a broad spectrum
0: that's true I think it was Benny Lewis he has this this book where he said it's like the vocabulary and all the other words are the bones and then the grammar puts some muscle and ligaments on those bones. So they're both very important. Yes, yeah, exactly. All right, Abbeville, you have dropped some bombs on us. Could you tell these people where they can find you? I know you're the queen of LinkedIn, but tell us all about it.
1: Yes, I am on LinkedIn. I post there almost every day, Monday through Friday. I also have a website, taylor framescom and I have a newsletter that you can subscribe to through my website where I send out like more personalized tips Monday through Friday to my list on how to boost their conversion rate and all kinds of things that I don't always get into on LinkedIn. So you can check that out as well.
0: All right. I'm loving the newsletter because you write just how you talk. You've been learning a lot.
1: Awesome. Time. Awesome. Thanks. We <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> really appreciate it. And for those of you who are watching with us, thank you so much for being here. You can follow us at Clever Hybrids on Instagram or Twitter, or find us on LinkedIn. You can even follow me, Gabby Van Horn, on LinkedIn, whether you're probably watching this right now. As I mentioned before, we're working on a course, and one of me and Abby's big pet peeves is people telling you what to do without showing you how to do it. It's like, why you leave me hanging, man? What's going on? <laughs> so this app that I'm working on is going to have a course that's not focusing on all these nouns. We're not gonna be talking about any of that. We're gonna dive right in to the things that most people get mixed up. How to pronounce ED, how to use contractions. What are these verbs that don't fit this ED formula? How do you say a huge number? Things to help you sound more natural. Adding a little bit of grammar as seasoning, but not as the main course. So if you'd like to know more about that, go ahead and check out our website, cleverhybrids.com. Make sure you put your email in to be able to see a notification when the course is ready and get a discount code for the pro course. Next week, we will have our rescheduled interview with Maria. Hopefully the internet is working. (laughs) But until next time, remember, nothing in life is a straight line anymore. And I'll see you then.